And now, as Brad has already said, we, we emphasize the supremacy and the priority of the word of God as his message to us. And so we want to turn to that word to look to it for wisdom and insight. And we're turning to an Old Testament book called Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. And we're beginning a series today on the Ten Commandments. Many people, even if they haven't read the Bible and aren't familiar with it as a part of their routine, no one ever gave them a study Bible, at least know that there's something in there called the Ten Commandments. And part of its importance and its enduring impact is that as the story is told in the Old Testament, when these words were given, there were actually a lot more than Ten Commandments that were given, but there was something about these that were unique such that it says the finger of God actually inscribed these ten, what they are is words, ten words on stone. And just like you or I, if we wanted to commemorate something really, really significant and for a long period of time, we might engrave it on a stone. We, you, know, you might get a plaque at work that acknowledges 20 years of faithful service. The more significant something is and the longer we want someone to remember it, we find a way of putting it down in such a way that it endures over time. And something written on just a post-it note, you might lose within 30 minutes. And something in an email, you might be able to access. Something written in stone, it already tells you that this is important enough. Somebody thought this was significant enough that this, they wanted not just the immediate hearers to see it, but they wanted people to look at it for generations and to know what it was that was said. And so we're turning to these Ten Commandments now as a series in our summer. And so we'll begin today with the First Commandment and go all the way through 10, which takes us until August 2nd, looking at each commandment. The subtitle we've said is The Law as a Lens, Mirror, and Window. Uh, Those of you that have bad eyes like I do uh, face a similar dilemma every day. I need to, when I wake up, find my glasses. And if I could find my glasses without the help of my glasses, I wouldn't need glasses, right? It's frustrating. So what you and I have to do is usually just put them in the same place so that we don't have to look for them. We just know where they are. And if we ever, for some reason, don't put them there, we know how miserable the morning is just trying to find them. But we need them. I need them. If I took my glasses off, I wouldn't be able to make out any of you. I can read well without my glasses. I can't see far away. So if I don't put them on and then I look into a mirror, there's a lot about myself I won't realize. <laughs> Most of you are looking at me and saying, do you realize your sunburn? And yes, I do. I was, uh, I was outside yesterday for five hours without shade playing in a soccer tournament. And so I, yeah, I am sunburned. I realize that. I put my glasses on and there's other things that tell me that too. Um, it has affected my head. I was looking for my keys this morning, which is the other thing you try to put in the same place all the time, and it wasn't where I put it, and so I went everywhere in the house trying not to wake up Amy or the kids, and then I realized, oh no, they were on the other side of the door. I left them in the door all night long. So I hope I don't do that with anything in the sermon today, but some of you can come up to me afterwards and say, it felt like you left something on the wrong side of the door. I'll, uh, I'll understand why. But we, we put these things down so that then when we see in a mirror, we see accurately, And then we see everything else accurately as well. I can now look through a window and see what it actually looks like outside. If I don't have my glasses on, it just all blurs together and I don't see any distinction. And throughout the Bible, God's word is described as providing all three of these functions. It's not just that we want to see the Bible clearly, but that when we read the Bible, it helps us see the world clearly. Things come into focus. It's like a lens that if we're willing to spend time in it and we're willing to study it, 
we will start to see things about our world that we've always had questions about, but it was kind of fuzzy, it was kind of hazy. And if we're willing to see the world through the lens of scripture, certain things become clear. Then it also says the word functions like a mirror. It shows us how we struggle to keep the word even on our best day. And even on my best day, I still have really bad eyesight. There, there is something fuzzy in my vision. And the Bible says that actually for all of us spiritually, there's something fuzzy in our hearts. There's competing desires going on. And so when, we, when everything kind of comes in focus, one of the first things we realize is, uh-oh, I'm not maybe living the way I should. I'm not living consistently or thoroughly even in the things that I believe. And then also, when we come to the Bible... We're supposed to not just look at ourselves and feel guilty. We're supposed to look through the Bible and see the Savior that it tells us about and how great and good God is. That it's a dangerous place if we allow for too much introspection and think that we just never measure up. That's not the ultimate place that the Bible wants to leave us. It wants to then move us forward to see how great God is and how good he is and how much he really does love us. And we just finished a series going through the book of Acts, and it said at the very, very end of that series that the Apostle Paul spent two years in Rome, filled with the Spirit of God, trying to persuade everyone from the law and the prophets that Jesus was the Christ. So our next series is in part trying to do what Paul was doing in Rome. How do we look at the law given in these Ten Commandments and see the world more clearly, see our sin clearly, but then also not be left there that we would also see our Savior clearly, that he really is the Christ, and he's the only one who could obey the law perfectly for us. So we're in Exodus chapter 20. You might be in the book, but not the chapter. This is on page 61 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. We're just reading three verses. Some of you will hope that means we have a really short sermon, but I don't know. (laughs) We'll find out together. Um, So we're just reading the first three verses of chapter 20. This is the first time we have these commandments given. There's two other places, later in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy, where they're restated. But Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's where we'll stop. We didn't just start in verse 3, though, because verse 1 and 2 are really, really critical to understanding verse 3. God is saying to his people that he has entered into a relationship with them by rescuing them from slavery, and now he has some things he wants to tell them. And so when we look at this passage as a lens, what does this passage reveal to us about God, about the world, and about salvation, there's a number of things that it says. But here's why this is important. And though these commandments were given thousands upon thousands of years ago, they're as relevant as ever. I don't get the paper anymore. I don't know how many of you do, but last week I was house-sitting for my parents, and they get the weekend paper. And if I do have a chance to grab a Sunday paper, I maybe, like some of you, go to the comics section first. So I pulled up the comics section. So this is last Sunday's paper, This comic was in every major outlet in the United States. It's the Dilbert comic. It's one of the most popular ones. Some of you like it, some of you hate it. But Dilbert's going on a date, and the girl says, so tell me a little bit about yourself and be totally honest. And he says, totally honest? Okay. 
I like technology more than I like people. I don't believe in free will, soulmates, or following my passion. I think life is a brief, meaningless event in a random universe that doesn't care. I only associate with other people because I have biological and economical needs. I think all human actions are driven by selfishness. And so the date replies, um, okay, do you have any questions for me? And Dilbert replies, am I still being totally honest or should I act curious? <laughs> what Dilbert is actually saying is what the author Scott Adams believes. He's one of the most prolific bloggers out there. He's a staunch atheist. And what he is saying is what he believes. I think life is a brief, meaningless event in a random universe that doesn't care. And so he thinks ideas like free will are stupid. Ideas like soulmates are stupid. Following your passion is foolish. And that everything we do only comes from selfishness. That's the lens through which he sees and interprets the world. So then any discussion of ethics or morals, laws that we need to obey, could only be understood on the basis of being helpful to you as an individual. And so do whatever it is you do that gives you the most joy but hurts the least amount of people because that's what everything is reduced to. And when we come to verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 20, when we look through this lens, what it tells us is that there is, in fact, a God. And this God is real, personal, and active. There is a God, and this God is real, personal, and active. And if we start looking at the world through that lens, it changes everything from that trajectory. But God is coming to his people and saying, this is who I am, and you can actually know me. I do exist, this is who I am, and this is what I've done. I have intervened in history. You were in slavery in Egypt. I showed up on the scene, saw the suffering that you were in, saw the abuse you experienced, and I did something about it. Because I'm not removed from what's going on in this world. I made the world, I love the world, I know everything that is going on in this world. And when struggles and challenges come into our lives, one of the temptations is to say, if all of these things happened, God must not be around. If there is a God, he must not care. He must be moved on to some other planet if he is there, because why would all this stuff be happening if, in fact, God was real, God was active, and God was personal? And so before any of the commandments are given, there's this introduction by God to say, I am here, I know what's going on. And when we look at the world through that lens, he is saying to the people of Israel, I, I've seen everything you've experienced and gone through, and I care. Life is not a brief event in a meaningless universe. Your life is valuable to me in a world that I created in which all of us will spend eternity somewhere. That's a totally different outlook, a totally different lens that brings things into focus. But it also, by that same token, doesn't deny sin in any way. One of the other things we see through the lens is that the world is broken and sinful. So this God who has announced himself 
acted in history has done so in part because the world is broken. And, and no one that he's speaking to can deny that. The people of Israel had just experienced 400 years of brokenness called slavery. That as they grew as a family and then as a nation, people looked at them not as potential neighbors but as enemies, as a threat, and that the only way to deal with them was to control them. And so they did. They controlled them by raw power for 400 years. And when you walk through a museum of ancient history and someone shows you all the great evidences of Egyptian civilization, the majority of it was built on slave labor. You only build things that big without any cranes or any technology if you are harming a lot of people along the way. Every one of them knows that. So there's no way that God can speak to them, introduce himself, announce his presence, and his desire for a relationship if this God does not take seriously the brokenness of our world. That It's not just a figment of their imagination. It's not just something they need to go to a little bit of counseling for and then somehow they'll overcome it. No, it's real. It's awful. It's something that not only happened to them, it happened to their ancestors. And he acknowledges that. I saw that. I saw the brokenness. I saw the pain and I heard your cries for redemption. I heard your cries for rescue. I heard your cries for healing. And then one of the other things we see through this lens is that salvation was always by grace. Because what he tells them is, They've already now been rescued. The, the, the whole dramatic story, if you've watched the movie, The Ten Commandments of the parting of the Red Sea, and then we're after all of those things have happened. And so God is saying to them, I've already saved you. You're no longer in slavery. And now I'm going to tell you certain things about how I want you to live. But it's not, I'm going to tell you all these things, and if you do them all well and you do them perfectly, then I might decide to save you. And so if you obey the law, then I'll save you. No, he comes to them and says, I have saved you. I have rescued you. By my grace, I came and did what needed to be done. Now you're free. But you have to understand something about how to live in freedom. Because part of the consequences of us having freedom and having free will is that we can choose then on our own at another point in time to go back into slavery. And so God gives them these commandments and says, write these in stone, that you won't make sense of any of the other laws unless you get these foundations right. That yes, I've set you free. I've saved you by my grace. You don't have to perform. There's not all these things you have to do in order to become a child of mine. I've entered into this relationship voluntarily. I've done everything that needed to be done to set you free. And what I'm about to tell you, I'm telling you because I love you because I love you. I'm not telling you all these things so that you look in a mirror and just feel guilty and get depressed. I'm telling you things because I love you and I want you to enjoy the freedom that I've given you. See, freedom is not just about opportunity. It's also about ability. The example I'll often give is that if you came to me and said, hey, your afternoon is free. We're gonna, we're gonna watch the kids. You can do whatever you wanna do. So you're free to go run a marathon. I would say, thanks, but I'm not able to do that. I don't just need six hours probably to walk one. 
There would be some training involved. I'd need to prepare for that. I'm not physically at this point able to do that. And so freedom is not just about opportunity. It's about ability. And so part of what God does in saving us and then sending his spirit for us is not that we would then never pay attention to law and say, well, we don't need to do that because that's not how we were saved. But through saving us, he's now given us the opportunity and the ability to start to live in a consistently ethic and moral way. By his power, by his strength. Not trying to earn anything from anyone, not trying to earn his favor, not trying to earn anyone else's favor, but out of the overflow of God's love in us that we would desire then to bless and love other people. And so that's why we have to read verse 1 and 2 before we read verse 3. So that then when he says the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What he is saying to them is that I'm the only God who can give you salvation by grace. I'm the only God who will enter into a relationship with you freely, without your performance, without your perfection. I am the only God that exists, that you can come to with the pain that you experience, the brokenness that you're suffering. And so don't have any other gods before me. Don't go to anyone else before you go to me. I am the only one that you can go to. I am the only one that is real, personal, and active. I'm the only one that acts in history to actually do something about the brokenness of this world. And so then when we look at the law, not just as a lens, but as a mirror, the question is, okay, so if we were to do that consistently, thoroughly, in every area of our lives, what would that look like? to have no other gods before me. And we have this gift of an incredible summation by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 22. So if your Bible's still open, go to Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus tells us something about what it would look like to have no other gods before God. This is on page 827 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. Verse 37 of chapter 22 This is page 828. Somebody asks him in the previous verse, teacher, what's the great commandment in the law? This is Jesus' response in verse 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And that's where we'll stop. That if we were to put God first, it would mean that we love him, that we desire him, desire to honor him, desire to please him, and that we would desire to do that in a completely integrated and holistic way, with our minds, with our hearts, with our soul, with the whole of our lives. Because if he is the God, and there is no other God, and he is the one who hears and answers prayer, and he is the one that provides redemption, he's the one who offers grace, and he is the one who is worthy of all of our thoughts in terms of supremacy and primacy, that we would desire to honor him. And so when we read the Bible as a mirror now and not a lens, we ask the question, do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind? And there's not a single person in here that can say you do. That you consistently, with all of your mind, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with no division or conflict, love him. You don't. I don't. I still don't. There's competing 
desires and loves and affections that go on. I do make a lot of decisions based on selfishness. And so there's the partial truth in what Scott Adams is saying, that the majority of people seem to make decisions based on selfishness and not love. And sometimes even the way I relate to God is not out of love for him, but out of a selfish desire to get something from him. And that's one of the easiest ways to relate to God. So many of us do that. Maybe if I just do do this or that, then God will do this for me. So that it's not based on love for him. It's not the overflow of thanksgiving for what he's given. It is selfishness. It is maybe if I do this, then God will guarantee me that my family will be healthy, that my children will be safe, that nothing wrong will ever come in my path. And God does not bargain on those terms. He can't be brought down to our level in that sense. And so when Jesus provides this summary, all he does is complicate it in that for us, if we only define it in the negative of not having any other gods, and some of the Israelites could have looked around and said, yeah, yeah, there, there's no idols in our home. There's, no, there's nothing anymore about Pharaoh or Egypt. You know, our home is rid of all of that. Okay. You've gotten rid of that, but present. Is there present in your mind and heart this singular focus and devotion and desire to do God's will alone? And not just in your actions so that other people would think you're a good person, but even in your heart when no one's looking, that you would just desire to do whatever he would have for you to do. And Jesus says this in part so that all of us would come before him and realize we don't keep this commandment perfectly. We need his strength to be able to keep his commandment. We need the Holy Spirit to help us love him so that the songs we sang about him being the center of our lives, him being the focus, everything we place our hope in, to actually mean that, we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to keep us focused because most of us live distracted. And so when we look at the mirror, some people think of the Ten Commandments as this ladder you have to climb to get to heaven. That if you just do all of these things, then maybe God will love you. And instead, what it shows us is that we couldn't do this even on our best day times a million. Which is why the idea of reincarnation doesn't provide any hope. Do you really think if you were given another shot at life, you'd do any better? I don't. Making the problem endless is not a solution to the problem. (laughs) Believing that I can come back and try and try and try again is not good news. It's not the gospel. Because when I examine my own heart, and now I've got the lens on, and I'm looking at the mirror, there's something off. And I can say that about anyone else I know, anyone else I see, that none of us perfectly obey this. Okay, so if we don't, then what is our hope in? If we don't obey the law perfectly and he loves us and he wants to obey this, where do we find refuge? What is the good news? For this, we turn to John chapter 17. And we hear an amazing prayer by Jesus himself. This is on page 903, where Jesus prays a prayer that only Jesus can pray. John chapter 17, page 903, verses 1 through 5. This is Jesus' prayer that he offers right before he goes to the cross and offers his life as a sacrifice for our sins. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And that's where we'll stop. Only Jesus, in total sincerity and truthfulness, could pray to the Father and say, I have done everything you asked me to do. I did love you with all of my heart, all of my soul, and all of my mind for all of my life. He's the only one that can say that with a straight face. You and I, if we were to pray that prayer, it'd be offensive. It would be blasphemous because it would not be true. So for Jesus to pray this, And for people 2,000 years later to continue to believe in him, part of what we do then when we read about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that we look at his life and see how he completely obeyed and perfectly honored his father in everything that he did. And that so many people, even if they don't believe in him, cannot disagree with him. And say, yeah, I mean, if you were to try to live like the best life you could possibly live, it seems like he did it. (laughs) but he also indicates that in all of that perfection, there was more than just him in mind. That he obeyed perfectly everything the Father asked him to do so that he could grant eternal life to all who would come to him. That's the good news. That he could say, I've done this. And now as I go to the cross, I'm offering my life as a substitute as an exchange. I'll take the death that you deserve because you haven't kept the law and give you the life that I deserve because I kept it perfectly. And because he kept it perfectly, he secured the promise that was an opportunity originally for Adam and Eve that if they just kept obeying, they would live forever. And Jesus now, our substitute, lived it perfectly and now possesses eternal life, and he offers it as a gift. This is what Paul was doing in Rome, trying to persuade the people that just like God came and intervened into your brokenness and your 400 years of slavery and said, here's freedom, he sent his son into the world to obey the law perfectly, to say to you and me, here's your freedom, here's your eternal life. And here's the thing, when you get all the way to the end of it and then you say, so should I, should I have no other God before me besides this God? You don't look at that and say, no, I guess it doesn't matter anymore. You say, what other God could I go to? Who else loves me like he loves me? Who else has done what he's done for me? And so that the exclusive worship of God throughout all of the Old Testament becomes in Acts chapter 4 when the apostles say, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. One God who offered 
one Savior. And that's the good news. And that's the challenge for you and for me. Do we believe that life is a brief event in a meaningless universe? And things like freedom, things like our souls, don't exist. And everything that's done is based on selfishness. Or do we believe that there is a God in heaven who made us, who sent his son for us, and who provides for you and for me freedom through his son and by his son through his law? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the relevancy of your word. We thank you for the things that become clear that when others tell us life is meaningless, every time we experience loss, the loss of a loved one from age or disease or broken relationship, our hearts tell us that's not true, that life does matter, that people do matter, that there must be more to life than just what we see. And so we pray that we would submit ourselves to your word, that you would help bring clarity into all that we see, that you would help us to understand our own limitations, and that you would help us to place all of our hope and all of our trust in you and you alone. In your son's name we pray, amen.